This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. I am currently residing in Green Zone Adjacent. Not quite Green Zone, but Green Zone Adjacent. What? So you know you're what yellow mean? then? Yes, I'm yellow. Um, we're both in the state of Pennsylvania, but apparently green doesn't mean what you think green means. So don't get too excited. I don't think uh, green is any different than yellow. Well, what I've been told as of Friday, green will mean some things can open up to half their capacity. So they can only go poor half as fast, which is good. Right. Apparently. But that's not what I want to start with. I want to start with sports tonight. Excellent. But not really, not really sports in the way you think, but we might get to that. So the NFL owners have decided that the Rooney rule, shamefully named for the owners of my Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, didn't go far enough. So now they want to incentivize teams to hire a general manager and or a coach who is a minority by giving them higher draft picks. So, well, that's the idea. Hasn't that been rejected? Well, they tabled it, but I wanted to talk about it because Mike Tomlin thought it would be a good idea. Doesn't think it'll happen, but thought it might be a good idea to have the discussion. Um, some other minority coaches have not said it was a great idea. What do you think? We're trying to legislate diversity. Legislate. We're trying to incentivize. We're diversity. trying to bribe diversity. Yes. Yes. It's a complicated formula, at least the way it was presented, that if you keep a coach and or GM past three years, you get a different draft pick. If they get hired away by somebody else, you get a higher compensatory draft pick. It's very complicated. But do you think it makes any difference whatsoever in the hiring of a coach? Well, and should it? when you ask if it makes any difference, do you mean in who's ultimately going to be hired? Yes. Well, I think theoretically it could, but your first question was, what do I think of it? Well, let me put it this way. If I was, by the way, it's interesting whenever we talk about minorities, because this is basically focused on African-Americans, right? Yes. Well, and Ron Rivera and, and <laughs> so Tom Forrest. I, I always wonder, I just, I'm always sort of bemused by the fact that none of the other minorities really seem to be represented. This is always basically about right. African-Americans. Okay. Which is fine. Uh, in other words, I understand why that is the, the biggest issue in terms of our nation's history, whatever. But when they're talking about minorities, it seems like any of the other groups, Asians, for example, seem to get left out, but bigger mm -hmm. picture. If I was an African-American coaching or GM candidate and I was as good as anyone else at the job. And I was told, well, you're, or I, I was hired under a policy in which the team was essentially paid an incentive to hire me. Right. So I got hired and by doing so they got a better draft pick. No, thank you. I mean, <laughs> the stigma that anyone who believes in their own merit and their own ability, who's interviewing for a job, in my view, would never want to be hired under those circumstances because the immediate taint is going to be, oh, so you're one of those guys they hired so they could get a better draft pick. Not, 
They hired you because you were the best person in the pool of available candidates, regardless of skin color. So I think it's a completely, um, not only is it a, an absurd proposal, it's an insulting proposal, in my view, to anyone who is a minor, a potential minority hire. And it, it does exactly, it's even worse than normal affirmative action, right? And we've talked about the fact that affirmative action is, it's essentially racism in reverse. That's what it is. We, we now discriminate for noble purposes. We keep the other people out so that we can make it up to the skin color that's been discriminated against before. That to me is not a very good solution to the problem. This ups the ante by basically saying, okay, we're desperate for you to do this. So let's essentially, we're going to pay you. We're paying you in football remuneration in the form of draft picks to hire. Uh Please won't you hire somebody, anybody who has skin color that we want to see in those positions. And I've heard a lot of African-Americans respond to this by saying, no, this is incredibly insulting what they're suggesting. It's very patronizing. Marvin Lewis was not in favor of it, but to be fair, I was not in favor of Marvin Lewis for most of his coaching career. So (laughs) that's the difference. I, I, I wanted to bring up the affirmative action because I feel like you feel it's insulting and I think it is insulting, but how many people took advantage of affirmative action to better themselves and didn't look back? Whether they recognize it was affirmative action, we we can use Harvard as an example. If you're Asian, you have a hard time getting into Harvard than if you're black. Oh, sure. Well, my objection to affirmative action, I don't dispute that there have been thousands, if not millions of people who have gotten themselves into elite universities based on affirmative action policies. My objection to the policy is that on its face, by definition, it is discrimination. It is, it is exactly what the Civil Rights Act prohibits, which is <laughs> expressly discriminating on the basis of color. The only reason, and, and the only argument in its favor is essentially that, well, it's good discrimination. We're discriminating for the right reason. Well, I'm sorry. The, that that sure. exception is nowhere in the statute, and nor should it be. The whole now the, the response is basically I heard somebody express this the other day, which was essentially admitting that it's discriminatory, but saying, you know what, we discriminated the opposite direction for 200 years, and so now it's time to do the reverse. Well, I, I simply don't buy that logic because discriminating to combat discrimination is not a solution <laughs> to wrong the right uh, that theory if it even holds any water would only hold water if the person you're discriminating against now was the person who got the advantage 200 years ago but since that's not possible you're now currently discriminating against people who didn't get the advantage you're claiming you're trying to reverse. Right. It's and the people well, who are same, getting the advantage weren't discriminated against. You're absolutely right. It's the same problem with it's exactly the same issue with reparations is that you are now actively discriminating against people who play no role in the prior discrimination. And so you're essentially punishing them. And by the way, there have been a number of studies, in particular, Asian Americans are the ones that are hurt the most by these policies because many, there have been studies, peer-reviewed studies of Harvard and of Yale and these elite institutions. And basically the, the ethnic group that is discriminated against the most by these policies is Asian Americans who in general, at least at that level, should be 
given admittance to these universities at a much higher rate. And they're the ones that are sacrificed so that someone else who has lower test scores and lower GPA and not nearly as good of a profile can get in. For some reason, no one has ever taken up the standard on behalf of the Asian Americans and said, hey, like, for instance, I don't know the ACLU, right, who purport to care about these sorts of things. But there's another important point that goes to this stigma. There are also peer-reviewed studies of an effect called mismatch. We've talked about this, where the person, you made the point, there's a lot of people that have taken advantage of this. Absolutely. And what has happened in a lot of cases, even no one's allowed to talk about this, is that those individuals, not all of them, some of them have thrived, but many of them find themselves then at an institution where they are not academically suited to be. And so this is not just speculation. There have been studies of this where they would have been far better off to have gone to, let's say, a school with less rigorous academic standards where they would have done and performed much better. And instead, they're thrust into an environment that is beyond where they should be. And this has nothing to do with their race. This would apply to anybody who is taken, who is elevated beyond their merit and their capabilities, whether black, white, yellow, purple, polka dot. And now say, and now you're told, do your best in a place that if you had on your own merit based on your own grades and your own profile would have never gotten in, they don't do well. And so the outcome for them, even though it seems like a good thing, is actually a bad thing. And there are a number of scholars, including a guy named Casey Johnson, who have written extensively about this. And of course, they're denounced as racist and mouth breathers and all that because we're not allowed to talk about that reality. But the same thing would exist in the NFL. Oh, you're the GM that they hired on the bribe, the diversity bribe program. That's great. Yeah. We, we already assume that you're really not as good at your job, but hey, your team got a draft pick out of it. Well, does the Rooney rule as it currently stands provide any of that kind of backlash? You know, you well, have to. Well, the Rooney rule, you though. You have to interview a minority. Right. But the Rooney rule yeah, did not provide right. a reward. All the Rooney rule said no. was you're supposed to have a certain number of minorities that are part of your interview process. Sure. I, I think if you're trying to find the best person for the job, you should cast the net far and wide to do that. I'm not a big fan of the retread policy in the NFL, but it's the retread policy that we have because these guys are ultra conservative and afraid to take a chance on somebody else for the fear of getting a dud. Um, and somebody with even a half decent proven record is better than the unknown for a lot of these owners. So they don't, they pick somebody that failed most other places. That's why they're available. So it's a, it's a complicated question about why is it that African-Americans and other minorities are not represented at least not to the proportions that, and again, I'd love to know what these proportions are supposed to be. Are they supposed to mimic the percentages in the general population? Well, there's problems with that analysis as well. Why should an insulated environment like professional football, particularly at that level, somehow mimic just how races and ethnicities generally appear in the population? So I don't even think that follows. So someone's going to have to first tell me what would be an acceptable percentage. But even more than that, I would agree that there are a whole host of variables that go into, you know, there are, these are people, okay, first of all, let's take owners. 
Are there any, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think right now. Are there any minority NFL owners? Chad Khan, uh, Jacksonville. Okay. And again, we've talked about the fact that he doesn't really count because at least as is concerned as our guardians of virtue are concerned, it, it really needs to be an African-American. Are there any current majority African-American owners in the NFL? I don't think no, there are. Never have been. There's never been okay. an African-American. So owner. we can have a very long and boring and, and separate conversation about so-called institutional racism and systemic bias and all that other stuff. But setting, setting that aside, I don't know exactly what the answer would be. One of my reactions to this is, per, per, particularly when it comes to GMs and coaches, okay, the NFL is an incredibly bottom line business. Mm-hmm. It is a money yeah. machine. Now, yep. you can take the position that all of these pale white owners basically are either consciously or unconsciously racist and do not want someone else breaking into their club, okay? I guess that's a theory, but my theory would be you're you're kidding yourself if you think that these owners, at least most of them, would not hire someone who they thought was the best candidate who was going to win them the most games and get them a Super Bowl trophy. Football is brutally meritocratic, right? Yes. Now, I don't know, are there enough guys in the pipeline to be considered? I don't know. Is there sort of a an almost affinity thing going on where, well, we're just more comfortable with people that look like us? I'm sure some of that is true as well. But the argument that this reflects, again, either conscious or unconscious racism at its root, I, I don't necessarily buy that. So you don't buy that Eric Bieniemy got shafted and should have gotten a head coaching job because, you know, He's produced one year of uh, great offense. I mean, yeah. It comes uh, well, first of all, to- nobody, nobody's in a position to even assess that. Okay. I, I just love them. Oh, he should have gotten a shot. Well, based on what? Based on, I mean, you, you understand the number of things that are going to be considered when you're talking about the represent, representative for your organization at the coaching level. It's almost like mm-hmm. the idea is, well, He's been a high-profile offensive coordinator. He's done well for one year, so he deserves a coaching job. Does he? Well, because he's a minority. And again, when you say minority, we got to remind people he's a minority in the general population. In the NFL, he's not a minority because the majority of the population in the NFL is African-American, player-wise, anyway. Right, and Uh, so that was sort of my point about the – the unique universe that is the NFL, because, and we've talked about this before, if you actually go by the population percentages, then there should be a lot of white guys who are very, very upset that they're not playing cornerback and running back and wide receiver. This is just terrible. The underrepresentation of white athletes at skill positions in the NFL. Does anyone make that argument? No, because it's absurd. If you're, if you're fast enough and you're strong enough and you yeah. can perform, you will get the job. Yeah. You do the job at the highest level, and we'll give you a shot. You don't do the job at the highest level, I don't care what your skin color is, you're not going to be on the team. It's that simple. You're, and if you're on the team, you're going to be a scrub, and you're going to not, not play much. And one other point, Chad. If you yes. have owners who are otherwise willing 
to draft and pay as multimillionaires 70% of their payroll as African Americans because these are the best guys and they want to win. You're going to have to explain to me a compelling reason why they would refuse to do that as a GM or a coach, particularly if your argument is that it's somehow grounded in racism. Well, why are they shelling out hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money to pay minority players to help them win, but they would be unwilling to do that for someone who's a coach or a GM? I'm not really following that argument either. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I will say, I, I do believe that there's, I think there's a lack of opportunities. And, and when I say that, I mean simply use Eric Bieniemy as a as an example. He played for, I don't know, 10, 11 years. I don't know how long he played in the league. Uh, while he was playing, other people were coaching. They were developing their skills as a coach. He was developing his skills as a player. Then he comes out and he becomes a coach and becomes an offensive coordinator. And he does very well with that for one year. But other people have been putting in the time for 15 years, 16 years, 20 years, trying to become a coach. That doesn't mean he won't become a coach, but I, I think it's unfair to say, you just showed up and now you should get a job because your name is recognizable as having played in the league. You know, that doesn't mean you're not a bad, you're not a good coach. It just means other people have been working at this for a long time and maybe they're just as good. Maybe they've shown organizational skills that you haven't had to demonstrate yet because you've not had that role. You know, I think we, we just assume you should get an opportunity simply because you you're there. And I don't think that's true because I think a head coaching job at the NFL level is all encompassing. You, you have to be able to do all those tasks. You can't just do a position or offense or defense. You have to be able to do everything and you have to do it well. And great offensive coordinators uh, have not been able to necessarily translate into head coaching roles. You know, I, you can name, you know, the, the Cowboys coordinators from the nineties couldn't make it, couldn't do it at the head coaching level. Well, you know, I, great. There's another, role. there's another subtle point here that I think owners consider and it comes from this environment where everything is scrutinized on racial grounds. So for instance, yeah. my favorite uh, NFL team is the San Diego chargers. Uh, probably not quite as much anymore. I'm going to be rooting for the Indianapolis Colts because basically I'm a Philip Rivers guy, but the head coach of the San Diego chargers is Anthony Lynn. Uh, he has been their coach for the last three seasons. He's African-American. I think Anthony Lynn is an incredibly admirable, admirable guy. I think he's a guy of very high character. However, I don't think he's a particularly great head coach. Now, in his three seasons, he inherited a team uh, from Mike McCoy that was in kind of disarray. They had a terrible season. And his first season, he went nine and seven. His next season, the feel-good season, they went 12 and four. They made the playoffs. They won a playoff game. They, uh, they stifled and suffocated the current MVP, Lamar Jackson, and then they got housed by the Patriots. Last year was a complete dumpster fire for a whole host of reasons, including the usual injury curse and the fact that their offensive line, uh, you know, couldn't block, you know, I, I don't, they couldn't block anybody. They had the worst offensive line in the league. Nevertheless, they went five and 11. Now I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine and we both agreed that we didn't think Anthony Lynn was the answer. Um, thought he was a good guy, decent head coach, but he's never tactically going to get them where they need to be. And they're also 
seems to be a consensus that he makes very bad player personnel decisions in terms of being loyal to veterans who really aren't very good anymore. Uh, the whole Melvin Gordon situation where he thrust him back in the lineup after he held out and he was gaining like one yard in a cloud of dust. But the point is for an owner to have fired Anthony Lynn after that season, this past season, there would have been a tsunami of criticism because you are now firing an African-American head coach who had a winning record, his first two seasons, the scrutiny that would have been applied on racial grounds would have been overwhelming. And so I basically took the position that there's no way that they would be able to do that. They could have very easily done it in my view with a white head coach because that extra variable would never have come into play. It would have been, you know what? You had a really bad season. We're retooling now that our franchise quarterback is gone and we're going in a new direction. The media would have eaten their lunch if they had gotten rid of Anthony Lynn after three seasons. My point is that scenario is inevitably something that an ownership group is going to consider before hiring because they know in a way that is not true of, of white coaches, once you have an African-American guy on your payroll, you are going to be constrained in terms of the public relations of what you can do if things go south. I do think that is a huge consideration that you can't handle it the same way because you are going to be criticized no matter what you do once they're there. A perfect example of this, who's the guy at Cleveland who went, what did he go, Chad? One and 31 in two years? Now, one and 31, what do you have, uh, two or three victories before they finally canned him? And are you, yeah. my argument would be, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that there would there was a different standard, a different leeway for him. Oh yeah, that would ever have been extended to a white head coach in that position. And I guess what I mean is there would not have everyone would there would have been no backlash whatsoever if after the zero and sixteen season they had jettisoned a guy who was not a minority. But there are different considerations because everything is viewed through that prism. I read an article when Ron Rivera. Okay, was let go by Carolina. And the the lead paragraph was basically about here's another minority coach that's been right. That was the focus. Not, you know what, he had a good run. There's a new owner. They want to go in a new direction. No, it was immediately about this is terrible because this guy's a minority and now he's not coaching. You will have that every time. I, I think every first contract should be five years. And if you jettison before that, you you have to double what you were going to pay them. I don't care who it is, because I think it takes time to get that. So you, it would make you have to really, really think about who I'm hiring instead of just grabbing somebody that I know I can Wait, fire next you, year. You think that the league should impose a mandatory five-year contract that you can't get rid of contract? First contract. No, you can get rid of them. It's going to cost you. Why? Why should why should the league be in the business of telling teams who they can hire and fire and when? Because maybe Anthony Lynn needs more time. They were doing they're doing a move. They lost their franchise quarterback. They can't find a kicker to save their life most of the time. And the offensive line is horrible. Is that Anthony Lynn's fault? 
No, it's not Anthony oh, Lynn's fault. But, he took the job, but okay. But Chad, maybe that's true. But why should anyone outside of the owners of an organization be able to dictate to them? This is how long you are going to have to maintain an employee, or you're going to pay a penalty if you get rid of them. Why? Why does that make any be, sense? Well, because it gives people time to to get. Look at you. Look, look at the Browns. How many coaches have they gone through since they've come back into the league in '98? I can't even tell you. I don't know. The so number, you're telling me that you would favor a rule that made the Browns keep Hugh Jackson as their coach for five no. years. No, I would favor a rule that says if you want to hire somebody, I don't care who it is. You have to the first contract after the five years, you can do year to year. If you want, give them five years to show they can do something. If you want to jettison before that, that's up to you. But then you owe them double what's remaining on their contract. That to me is ridiculous. That's a ridiculous well, proposal. Maybe. No more ridiculous than giving better draft picks because you're hired a minority. Yeah, but coach now you're, you're literally actively punishing an organization and telling them basically, we're not going to allow you the autonomy to make good, bad, or indifferent decisions about your own employees. We're going to make but you have to make bad decisions what? over and over. They make bad decisions over and over and over. Well, and they suffer me, for that. Let, let me use this example Bill Belichick. When he was at Cleveland, he was okay. wasn't great, wasn't horrible, was okay. He's won six Super Bowls with the Patriots. Do you think if he had been given more time in Cleveland, he may have been able to do more? Possibly, absolutely. Marvin Lewis, but guess what? Marvin Lewis stays in Cincinnati for fourteen years, and he never won a playoff game. But this is why this is why there are consequences for good management and bad management. Absolutely, I think that if he had stayed in Cleveland, but guess what? That's why the Cleveland Browns are a lousy organization and the Patriots are not because they saw that Belichick could be a championship coach. And that's the way it turned out. The idea that you're going to mandate that someone gets a specified period of time to thrive, I think is absurd. You're basically playing like czar, NFL czar that says you must give, because guess what? For every person like Belichick, who was mediocre yeah. and then turned into the best coach in football history. There's guys that literally stink. And after one year, it's very clear they can't handle the job. And your position is you still have to keep that guy for four years. Oh, you don't, you can fire him, but you got to pay him. Right. Why would you it's have to pay them? Why would you have to pay them? If you're a Browns fan, are you happy with the way the franchise has come since 98? Are you happy with you? They, you keep saying, Give me your money. Come and see this crap we put on the field. And every year we're going to have more crap to put on the field. But we're going to be better this year. I guarantee you we're going to be better. Just keep giving us money. And you keep making – there's no – there's not as much financial burden for screwing it up. And maybe I'm thinking more from a fan's perspective than a league perspective. I agree well, your with you. Policy, your policy in a situation where the coach is – Never hire Hugh Jackson. He showed he wasn't a head coach in – in uh, Oakland. Right. But you didn't need to hire him in Cleveland to figure that the out. The point is you're going to have to hire somebody. And what you're doing by that policy is you're actually locking in ineptitude. You're basically saying Maybe. you're going to either be stuck with someone who turns out to be a bad decision, or we're going to penalize you for, for making that decision. Look, the penalty comes in the fact that you made a bad hire and the penalty comes in the fact that you have repeated transition at the most important role on the team. In, in essence, the market itself is enough of a penalty. Your example, the Cleveland Browns, is perfect. They can't seem to get it right, 
and they've gone through who knows how many coaches and how many offensive coordinators. And you're right. The fans are upset. They have a right to be upset, but I think they would, I think they would be outraged at the idea that you gotta, you gotta pay a penalty to stick with a guy that you've decided is no good. I just, that's basically nanny state football. But I don't agree. That's nanny state. I think it's more of, you can fire them at any time, but you have, you're being forced to say, I'm really thinking this through. I'm not taking a flyer on somebody that I know I can can in nine months. Yeah, because but NFL, do you really think there's an NFL organization at that level that is taking flyers on coaches? Uh, Cleveland. They're not taking flyers. They're just making decisions that turn really out bad poorly. Decisions. Really bad decisions. Do you think that they're not vetting these guys from sunset to sundown and doing every ounce of due diligence to make sure they just get it wrong? Because some organizations are lousy at doing that. Who's the head coach of Cleveland right now? Um, who is the head coach? Kevin Stefanski. That's right. They I have forgot. Okay, but what is your point? What's your larger point? They've had 12 head coaches since they came back in the league in 99. Okay, but how does that support your policy of making them keep one of them? It doesn't, but it, what you say is, okay, before I hire this person, I really want to be sure. I really want to be sure that this is what I want because I'm not just going to hire Eric Mangini because he failed at the Jets, but I think he can turn around the Browns. Of course he couldn't. You know, Mike Pettit, Pettit he, he was there for a year. Well, you're, you're assuming, but again, your assumption is that these organizations, even the lousy ones, are basically like, you know what, I'll try this variety of hot pocket today instead of what we use. These are decisions at the highest level that they are taking Maybe. seriously. And guess what? The Browns have gotten it terribly wrong over and over and over again. But mandating that they stick with their terrible decision or pay a big penalty, I don't see how that's helping anything. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know how I don't know it could be worse. I enjoy this. This is this is a good disagreement. Well, then we're gonna add some more to it because the NBA is talking about a at least initial round if they come back, uh, much like the World Cup. Uh, tiered teams with uh, groups of, I think it's four, uh, five, five groups, four teams in each group. Uh, what do you think about that? I actually have. So, what is the, this proposal from Adam Silver? So they're based on the their the regular season records. They they've ranked five different groups and the top four teams in each group. So I don't have the names in front of me. Uh, and then put one in each. One in each group, you have a round robin like you have in uh, World Cup soccer, and they each team would play the other four teams in their group uh, twice, and the winners out of those group would go on to a series of seven games for regular playoff like you normally have. So the first round would be a round robin. All uh, right, so basically the first round is going to be used five. to whittle it down to four teams in a so you'd have semifinals, yeah. and then from there on you're going to have seven game series. Correct. And and they would add the four teams that were closest to making the playoffs. So you get your 16 that already would have qualified for the playoffs if they took the records as they stood and add four the four next best teams. The other 10 get to sit home and watch. They don't come, come back out. And play it all in Orlando, uh, Disney World. Um, I don't... Isolated. I mean, to be honest, I don't really have a major problem with that. I, I mean, it's it's a little bit gimmicky, but they're trying to do something. I do think that let's just put it this way. The championship in some ways, I'm not going to say it's going to have an asterisk, but 
you know, it's number one, the whole season is truncated. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess it would be very interesting to see how many upsets emerged out of this round robin scenario, because as I understand it, then they're only playing each other team one time. And then it's going to be twice. Hmm? twice, twice. So if there's five teams that play each, each other team in the group twice, so that's eight games in that first round robin. Okay. I don't know. Mario. I actually think it's kind of fascinating. I obviously what this is a proposal for this year only or, or going forward. I think it's just for this year and see how it works. Uh, Adam Silver has said he, he likes what the world cup captures with the, you know, two and a half weeks of uh, excitement worldwide. And maybe this could capture some of that because it gives teams a chance possibly to advance when they wouldn't otherwise have done so. Oh, absolutely. There's for upset. Whether or not that you'd actually see any, I don't know. Uh, but you know, anybody could win on any given night possibly. And you, you win enough games in that round robin, maybe you get to go on to the next round. I mean, that's, and then let's put it this that way. That's, that's in some respects a scarier scenario for, let's say, a team like the Lakers, in my view, or some of the more prohibitive favorites, because basically... Lakers and Bucks were number one in each in the East and West. Is what? going in. Lakers and Bucks were the two right. top seeds going into this. I mean, my attitude about the NBA, and I think this is borne out, is when you are playing seven-game series... Uh, which the normal schedule would be you have three seven game series just to get to the finals. Okay. Almost yes. inevitably, inevitably the best team is going to win because Usually. they're in a seven game series, a lesser team, particularly at one after the other, after the other, they're not going to make it through that kind of gauntlet. So that's why you see in the NBA, for instance, the Jordan Bulls won six championships because they were the best team and nobody's going to beat them. And Shaq and Kobe's Lakers won a three-peat. I'm talking about the modern era, but this happened even in the past when you had Russell Celtics winning, I think, 11 in 13 years. In the NBA, under that format, it is very, very difficult for, let's say, upsets where an inferior team, sure, they can win a game, maybe they can win two, they're not going to beat a better team four games out of seven. So round robin does, I think, increase the possibility for, let's say, a team that can get hot, but they're inconsistent, who couldn't win a four-game series, who might, in a round-robin format, find a way to actually get into the semifinals. So that could be interesting. It could be matchups. that You know, in that round-robin, it's a little better matchup for certain teams than it is for others, and you have to win two against that team. So I don't know. I find it interesting. I mean, I think it's, I think it's creative, and... I would I would be interested in seeing how that worked if they could pull it off. It would I don't definitely know. look if nothing else. It would be a huge conversation starter. The fan interest would yeah. be number one since we've been starved of any kind of sports anyway. So I actually think <laughs> it's, it's kind of a unique idea. And I've been one of the people that have always been saying you need to reseed the playoffs anyway because yeah. all of the and it's shifted. But recently all of the power has been in the Western conference. And, you know, when LeBron was going to his, whatever, eight consecutive finals in the East, the East was pathetic. And so he's Mm -hmm. running a gauntlet of, you know, the Raptors. I understand the Raptors won the championship with Kawhi, but before that it was cupcakes, as Dick Vitale would say, cupcake city, baby, until (laughs) the NBA finals. And so it would have been, Meanwhile, you had a lot of championship caliber teams in the West in this bloodbath where they're fighting mm-hmm. each other, trying to get to the finals. So this round robin actually, I think, goes a little bit towards um, making that balance better. Well, at least in the first round. After that, maybe it's back to yeah. power win. 
I don't know. Uh, what about the uh, Major League Baseball coming back with a truncated schedule and reducing the pay of the top players to fully guarantee the lower players? Did you see that today? Well, how in the world is a league going to reduce the pay of players who have signed contracts with private organizations? That seems to me, me um, illegal, meaning like that that's like somebody telling you if you have an employment contract with your wherever you work hey guess what because we shut down for whatever we're going to rip in other words someone outside the organization say we're going to rip that up and you're basically only get half pay now i don't see how that's possible well didn't the nba take a pay cut what do you mean the nba i thought the nba players were not guaranteed well, well they were guaranteed look, money they but can they do were, whatever they want to do within their collective bargaining agreement Okay, so well, this is with the NL, MLB Players Association. Okay, this so if a, they want to do it through the Players Association, that's yeah, one thing. Outside. What, what do you think? Because I've heard some players say, "I'm not going to play if I don't get my full pay, even though I'm not paying a playing a full season. I'm not going to take less than my full pay." Yeah, well, and again, even through the Players Association, for instance, let's say the MLB Players Association through its union reps says, "We think it's a good idea for everyone to take a haircut." I don't think they can go to Bryce Harper and say, hey, guess what? We've all decided because I don't think the collective bargaining agreement gives them the power to say, once we've decided to take a pay cut, we get to slash the contract that you have with your organization. I think Bryce Harper and anyone else could say, yeah, that's a nice idea, guys. I'm not contributing. Sorry, I'm getting my full pay. But if he if he refuses to play, does he get paid? If, if he says, you either take less. Or I'm going to offer you less. You you can take it or leave it. I know it's not a contract, but I don't have fans. I don't have. It doesn't matter. You know, anything else to unless generate that revenue. The contract has a provision that says, in the event of a pandemic or an act of God, we have the ability to proportionally reduce your pay. Too bad, Mr. Owner, because it's huh? different than a holdout. Your situation where you're saying, oh, if he doesn't pay, if someone is under contract and says, you know what? If you don't extend my contract or renegotiate, I'm holding out. The owner can absolutely say, you know what? You hold out. You ain't getting no pay. But this is a scenario where you're suggesting someone from the outside is going to propose, you know what? Because this happened and it's unprecedented, everyone should take a haircut. Well, that might be the ethical thing to do, but from mm -hmm. a contract basis, I don't see how they could enforce that. Okay. I, I just... I just throw it out there to see what you think. Uh, I don't, it's, it's baseball. So, you know, my position on baseball, <laughs> if it doesn't come back, I'm okay. I mean, look, doesn't matter. Irony, well, here's the thing. An owner could, in that scenario could also say, Hey, you know what? Yeah. We signed you to that 22 year deal. You're old and decrepit now and you're hitting 221. So I think we're going to reduce your pay by 40%. It's exactly the same scenario. It is. And, and I don't disagree with that. I just, I just throw it out there because I think it's interesting. Um, all the sports are trying to figure out a way to come back somehow. They see that there's a a gap in people's entertainment and they think they'd be starved for what they're doing, but they can't bring fans back. Uh, and I, I just do not know. I don't know. Oh, there's, there's going to be major long-term consequences in terms of TV revenue and all of these existing contracts that are, you know, there's a massive revenue hit now for all of these, you know, all of these professional sports leagues. But 
I'm not aware of any mechanism that allows them to just say, we are now rescinding the existing contracts that we have. Again, we could talk about it, it'd be too boring. You know, a lot of contracts have these force majeure clauses, look it up, very boring stuff. But unless the contract with the individual player specify or the collective bargaining agreement has a provision in it that says in the event of this, you basically give the union the authority to collectively reduce how much you're going to get paid. There's no way to do that. It's a nice idea, but if someone's going to hold out and say, um, I'd like to be greedy. I'm going to keep all of my money. Thank you very much. Pandemic or no pandemic. I don't see any way that you can force them to take less. We're going to see what happens. I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but it should be very interesting when it does. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we talked last time about hypocrisy and I thought I'd, touch on that again in Michigan. Um, Governor Whitmer, have you, have you seen this governor Whitmer's uh, husband with governor Whitmer's antics? Yes. Well, she wants to give free college to everybody. I'm not sure where she's going to get the money for that, but apparently she thinks if I distract you long enough, you won't realize what a dumpster fire it's become. No, her husband this weekend uh, tried to jump the line in a Marina, get his boat ready for the weekend uh, the holiday weekend and, um, used his wife's name as uh, Hey, does that get me to the front of the line after she told people not to rush to the beaches and, uh, to still kind of shelter in place whenever possible. Right. I know you're shocked by that. It's total surprise to everyone. Uh, but it seems like the contradictions just keep on coming. I, I referenced at the top of the show that, uh, we're in the state of Pennsylvania and there's a uh, red, yellow, and green. And contrary to what you might believe green, doesn't actually mean free for all. It means still restricted, uh, half open, half closed, sort of kind of uh, basically what our governor has stated was he thinks there needs to be a cure for COVID-19 before we can actually get back to freedom. Yeah, he's he's bonkers. Um, well, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, a cure. Presumably he means a vaccine. No, he said cure or vaccine. Well, what does he think the cure is? Like just medicine? I don't know. What he knows. I, I'm not sure. I, I, is it uh, euthanasia? I, I don't know what he's saying. I, I'm not really sure. I, I really believe the man believes his own hype. I, I truly believe that. And I think there's a lot of governors out there who are starting to believe that they're. Well, and again, and this becomes the question. And it, I've made the point before that this coronavirus is more serious than seasonal flu. Okay. But if a governor is literally saying things like, well, we're going to have to have a cure. The obvious question is going to be, well, governor last year, um, across America, 60,000 people died from the seasonal flu. Right now we're at a hundred thousand deaths for COVID. And again, I'm not making the argument that they're the same, but if you're going, if, if his position is going to be, we have to basically eliminate all risk right? No risk to anybody. Why are we not in green, yellow, red cycles for the flu? Because I, I don't know. 60,000. Maybe we should be from the flu. Maybe that's your thought. We should have been, and we weren't Is that possible. I mean, if, if the, if the answer to every, um, disease, every virus is going to be, well, we really need to have restrictions on freedom until there's a cure. You can go down a litany of things where we better shut down the economy permanently. Cause I could list five different things that are ongoing right now. I'm not even talking about stuff like heart disease. I'm talking about infectious diseases, the flu influenza that 
influenza kills 80,000 people, right? Yeah. If you're going to predicate it on, we have to have a cure that is an impossible, unworkable and incredibly irrational and destructive policy position. It's, it's a utopian idea that will never, ever work other than to allow these people like Governor Wolf and Governor Whitmer and Governor Newsom to have almost, you know, king-like power over their subjects, which call me cynical, I think is a large part of the appeal. I I would agree with you. I saw that uh, Governor Cuomo blamed the nursing home deaths in New York on Donald Trump because Donald Trump's CDC gave them the guidelines and they followed them and that's how everybody died. Okay. So th- this like, is class. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. So we talked about this. I think now the number, I think it's over 4,000 people in New York who were infected because of their department of health regulation were forced on skilled nursing facilities. You had to take them in. And I think now there's potentially, I I don't know the exact numbers. The numbers are untrustworthy anyway. We're talking thousands of people who died. And initially Cuomo basically said, well, tough luck. This is, this is the law. Then he realized this is a disaster. Then he pretended he wasn't really aware of it. Then he came out and said, yeah, this was, this was a mistake. I'm rescinding this. By the way, did you see at least temporarily that that order, which mandated the nursing facilities to take sick residence has been yanked from the website. Mm-hmm. You can't find yeah. it. Yeah. How, how ironic. It's already memory hole yeah. everything. And now, right. His now after meeting, I'm sure with his panel of spin meisters. Oh, that's it. We'll blame it on the federal government and the CDC. Cause we were just doing what they said. And by the way, they weren't doing what they said because <laughs> as part of the language that, you know, you should take in these people only if you can maintain the level of security safety standards health wise that would prevent the spread and what multiple owners and directors of nursing facilities were telling the New York regulators at the time was don't make us do this because we cannot protect all of our other vulnerable residents. And they were told pound sand, take them in. And yet somehow Chad, and this is so curious, Andrew Cuomo has his little fireside chats on MSNBC. He's lauded as presidential and responsible. And look at this as a leader. And and yet no one seems to ask him, do you have blood on your hands? Because nope, you not me. ordered nope. sick people to be among the most vulnerable members of society. Nothing to see here. It's Donald Trump's fault. Issued that order, they would be calling for him to be marched to the guillotine, right? I would say the same thing if if it was a Republican governor who blamed Obama, because it's stupid. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. They they would. I guarantee you, they would be calling for them to be immediately criminally prosecuted for murder. Now, speaking of Donald Trump and stupid things, he got into uh, a Twitter. I mean, he does Twitter all the time. What's it called? The commander in tweet uh, with Jeff Sessions. I I just foolish. I want to say this again. Shut up. Just shut up. You, take the win and shut up. Now, I don't know if Tommy Tuberville is a better candidate in Alabama than than uh, Jeff Sessions. But Donald Trump should just shut up. Yeah, he just needs. Well, he stop this again. This is this is the you're picking battles 
uh, that you don't need to pick. Okay. Jeff said he's still angry at Jeff Sessions for recusing himself, but in terms of Trump's policies, particularly immigration sessions is probably the biggest immigration hawk in the country. And so you are, you're picking a fight with this guy. You're alienating. There's a lot of people that respect Jeff Sessions. Okay. Why would you people hate him too? Why? You know, sure. Goes, but, but most of the people that hate him are not Trump voters. So, Correct. so you're going to fight with a guy that appeals to most of the people in your base. Why? Yes. Well, and we know why, because he just can't help himself. But he, there's somebody needs to be on this guy and say, just stop. It just, it gets tiring. I won't. I know I'm not a, I'm not a never trumper, but man, it just shut your hole once in a while and be quiet. Just I, I know you're 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 dog whistling to the Democrats and they jump over everything, but some of the people in, that are even supportive of your policies just need you to be quiet. I don't need your yapping every day. This, this is one of those scenarios where and I've made this argument that you know the media portrays Trump as this bozo who just fires off tweets all the time with no purpose. And in fact, I think many of the things that he sends out do have a lot of thought behind them, meaning he intentionally picks fights with the media, the things that he says, but when he does stuff like this, it's just, it's just stupid. And all the Scarborough thing, right? Why, Why is he? Why? Because, because Scarborough is critical of you because who cares? Because he's petty. Because he knows, because he knows in general that when he picks fights with the media, and by the way, I think the media deserves much of what they get. They're a disgrace, and Joe Scarborough is a particular disgrace. But I don't disagree. Don't constantly have to lower yourself to these gutter battles with people like Joe Scarborough. I mean, this is when people who can't stand Trump look at him and say, "The, the guy's a clown. You're demeaning yeah. the office." The point about Sessions, though, is. There's a way that he could handle Jeff Sessions. What he should be saying, how hard would it be to say Jeff Sessions is an American patriot and he was basically forced to resign by virtue of all of these people that were promoting this Russia hoax. And I deeply regret that he had to do that. I really don't think he should have resigned, but I respect why he did it. You don't have to attack this guy. Why are you making a guy that is aligned with most of your policies into an enemy? Why would you do that? Because in some respects, you're you're an infant and you have to fling your poo at your enemies, right? Just because that's what you do. It's true. Well, it's, it's infantile and it gives credit to people who, want to blame you for everything and want to discredit you for anything you've done well. And, and I think it just, I think there's calculated temps at the mainstream media and calculated things at other people, but sometimes it's just noise. It's just blather and noise. And it just, uh, we've said it before, just stop, just act like an adult no, for five minutes. He, he, it, look, he can't do it. And the reason he's not going to stop, part of it is because it's in his DNA, but part of it is because most of what he has done, due to the basically hysteria and insanity of many of his opponents, has been effective. And so he makes the mistake of thinking, every time I engage in this kind of food fight, it it's to my advantage. Well, that's not necessarily true. Many times right. it is, but in this kind of situation, like you said, just be quiet. Take the high road. No, at least not possible. Uh, he'd rather he'd rather punch it out on the low road all day long. 
So you you touched on some of his things. Uh, Obamagate. I don't know if that's the right name or not, but we've talked about this ad nauseum prior to all this. It seems like every day there's a little bit more that's come out. Uh, Susan Rice's uh, CYA memo. We talked about that quite a while ago. Uh, Joe Biden, maybe. It all just seems dirty and icky. And I think the fact that the mainstream media kind of What's Trump in this? Oh, why are you talking about this? This is not really true. I think it's it's a higher reaching thing than I think we're even being told, but it really bothers me. It's it's bothered me since we found out about it. It continues to bother me, and I continue to want the people responsible not to skate on it. And it bothers me that I think they will. I oh, think they will all skate. It should, I don't think anybody would punish for it. This. Should bother anybody, regardless of political affiliation who claims yeah. to be interested in quote unquote, the rule of law and demo- there is no debate anymore to anyone who is paying attention to this. Okay. And I'm not talking about because you're listening to Sean Hannity. No, no, we, we have now as Chad reference every week, seemingly every day, a new document is pried loose, which demonstrates all of this from the beginning, not just because Flynn is just a smaller part of the overall Russia sure. hoax. All of this was premeditated. All of this was done by a group of people who basically decided, number one, we're going to try to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president. And if he does become president, we're going to use the power of government, the power of the CIA and the FBI, the most you know, intrusive, the most powerful agencies in our country to destroy him and to destroy his campaign and to prevent him from effectively governing. It used to be that you could be called a tinfoil hatter for claiming that this is, you know, a conspiracy. This, in my view, and we've said this before, and I don't think there's any dispute about this. What has gone on here for the last three years, the collusion, the leaking, the lying, again, the use of government power to attack an opposing presidential campaign and then the president in office dwarfs into microscopic insignificance Watergate. This is far worse. It is far more abusive. It is far more dangerous to our national polity. And I agree with you. There is going to be a level of disgust and in, in some cases rage among people who are paying attention to this. If these people, once again, the Brennans and the Clappers and the McCabe's and the Strocks and the Susan Rice's, all of these people, the Comey's good grief, the James Comey's of the world, if they get to skate on this. Now, I want to make the point that Andy McCarthy, who's the best guy to read about any of this in terms of analysis, there are many things that these people did that are arguably grotesquely unethical and corrupt that are not necessarily crimes. So I'm not saying that all of them are going to be frog marched, but for instance, leaking classified information is a felony. We know that went on dozens of times. Let's just pick one example, the initial leak of Michael Flynn's conversations and his identity. That is a felony. That person, and there's a there's a narrow group of people who could have done that. They need to find out who that was and they need to be prosecuted. Andrew McCabe lied under oath when he was interviewed by the FBI, his own employees, his own underlings, 
about mm-hmm. who leaked information about Hillary Clinton's probe. He then finally admitted, oh, it was me, yeah, hijinks and horseplay. Uh, Andrew McCabe should be prosecuted. Michael Flynn was prosecuted for making a statement to the FBI that now seems almost certain to not have been a lie, but he was set up to be extorted and entrapped because they were after Trump. This stuff needs to be taken seriously. And unless and until the DOJ shows the willingness and the ability to target these people properly for what they did, the person, for instance, the attorney that doctored information that went into a FISA application literally changed it to mean the opposite of what it was so they could surveil an American citizen, Carter Page. He needs to be disbarred and prosecuted. These are, I mean, we could go through this all day long. Unless and until that happens, there's going to be no consequence for these people and no disincentive for the next group of rogue uh, people at the top of the pyramid to decide we're really the ones that run the country. We don't really care about election decisions because the lemmings don't know what they're doing and we know best. So if you want to perpetuate this sort of more equal pigs environment, this is going to continue unless somebody goes to jail. Well, I don't even, I don't necessarily have to somebody go to jail, but I want the light worker to be shown for the dark person that he is. I I want him to be shown for, I'm not defending Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon could be reprehensible. But if Donald Trump getting impeached uh, is a stain on his legacy, as Nancy Pelosi said, why is Barack Obama not stained in a different way, but equally stained for his role in this? Because nobody can convince me he didn't know. Sorry. Well, look, we we basically we, proof we, know that. we basically know that he knew. Yeah. We now have the unredacted unredacted documents from that January fifth meeting. Susan Rice was there. Comey was there. Biden was there. And one of the things that we now know from the uh, the unredacted portions of that is Obama already knew about the Flynn investigation before Sally Yates, the then acting Attorney General, knew. In fact, there's a reference the in there that she was, the she was stunned <laughs> to be learning this information from Obama. And even in Susan Rice's CYA memo that she drafts on the day that Trump is inaugurated, saying 14 mm-hmm. in a meeting 14 days ago, you know, uh, the president assured that he wants things done by the book. But in that uh, self memo, memo to self, it also says that Obama wants to be kept apprised of everything that's going on. He was running this thing from the top. Now, again, to my prior point, that doesn't make it criminal, but it certainly makes it corrupt. It certainly makes it an abuse of power. Yeah, doesn't it? You don't, I think we're all old enough to understand that politics is not a clean uh, situation. There, There are things that happen that shades of gray in a lot of situations, but even this seems, a li- as you said, abuse of power. It seems over the top from what we're used to at Washington politics from anybody. You're, you're spying on the competition prior to the election, and you're f- basically framing up everything to ruin his administration. That Well, and again, see, I think people that don't follow this, and look, if you're somebody that, fortunately for you, 
you know, doesn't read various sort of in-depth analyses of these things, and you're just watching the 24-7 news cycle, you probably listen to this and say, okay, Chad and Tony are part of the uh, the Fox News Brigade, right? Well, first of all, neither of us really watch Fox News. But the point is, <laughs> if you really take the time to review the source, the primary source material on this, okay, there are actual documents that are out there in the public domain that have been released there is no question that any, this is all documented. This is not a matter of inference and opinion. For instance, we also know from the documents that during that January 5th meeting, James Comey is basically asked by Obama, um, is there a reason essentially that we should be withholding information relating to Russia from the incoming campaign, the incoming administration? And this is after Comey has basically told him, yeah, we don't really have any evidence that we've reviewed the Flynn. Remember, they had the Flynn transcript. Yeah, we've reviewed right. all of this. Uh, there's nothing there. And then Comey basically says, well, potentially, potentially. So this is all wink, wink. Like, we know we have nothing, but we are literally going to hide national security information in our own little pipeline from the incoming administration. Again, we get tired of saying this. If the tables were turned on this and this was a, an outgoing Republican administration with this type of behavior, there would be there would be a thousand new hires for the New York Times tasked to this story for a decade. <laughs> Right. Yes. Fighting over the right. multiple Pulitzer Prizes that they were going to win with Robert Redford playing the part in seven consecutive sequels about this. So it is corrupt to the core. And the fact, you know who I would encourage people to read? If Again, if you um, if you have nothing better to do and you're interested in this stuff, there's a guy named Matt. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's like Taibbi, T-A-I-B-B-I. He writes for Rolling Stone. He hates Donald Trump with the passion of a thousand sons. He wrote a book called Insane Clown President. He is hardly an apologist for Donald Trump. He is, he's as left-wing as you can get in most of his politics. But he has written a series of deeply sourced factual articles where he has basically pointed out that what is going on here is the biggest scandal in certainly American journalistic history and it is well worth a read because I'm sure he is being disinvited to every appearance on CNN and MSNBC that he used to get for having the intellectual honesty to say what's going on here. But guys like that are few and far between. The media will never acknowledge this, and they're going to bury anything related to Obama. That's true. Just as an aside, uh, did you notice that Judge Sullivan in the Flynn case now has his own attorney to represent him? Oh, wait. We we. We do need to just very quickly talk about Judge Sullivan because uh, yes. someone needs to drug test Judge Sullivan. So <laughs> this is again, for if you've forgotten, this is the judge in the Michael Flynn case who has been presented now with a motion by the prosecution to dismiss the charges. And in that situation, the only thing that a judge can do, because he's not the prosecutor, and you can't force someone to prosecute a case is to say, thank you very much. Everyone go home. Judge Sullivan, again, because there's some sort of chemical imbalance going on here, or Wilford Brimley has incriminating photos of him, is <laughs> has first said, uh, I'm not ruling on the motion, and I'm going to have amicus, okay, which are friends of the court, which, by the way, 
he's inviting them to present briefs, which he had previously, consistent with the controlling law, told Flynn's attorneys, we will not allow amicus briefs. But now we're going to have them. Then he is hired. He's hiring a former judge who wrote an editorial in the Washington Post opposing Flynn to advise the court on whether new charges can be brought. So the, the judge is creating a new charge out of whole cloth and wants advice from a partisan in the case. But then the best part that Chad just alluded to, this went up on appeal on a writ of mandamus, which is basically that a government official must is is must take an action that they're required to do, essentially to compel them to do their duty under the law. And Judge Sullivan has retained his own lawyer to respond because the appellate court said to Sullivan, please explain yourself. Please explain your basis, your legal basis for not dismissing the charges. And Sullivan, as if acting as if he's a litigant, I have never heard of a judge hiring a lawyer to present Judge Sullivan's case to an appellate court. Here's the way this usually works, Chad. The judge writes his own explanation and says, here, appellate court, is why I have done these things. Judge Sullivan, I should start calling him Judge Smales, has decided that at Bushwood, what we do is we hire lawyers who then explain what the judge is doing. I, I Caddyshack. This guy needs to be removed from the bench. I mean, this behavior is so erratic and bizarre that I question whether this guy actually has the competency to serve as a federal judge anymore. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> it just seems he's either being paid or he's crazy. I, I don't know. I, I would be interested. I, I dare say now again, this is, you know, it's a big country and there's a lot of wacky people out there. I don't, I think this is the first time in history that a federal judge has hired another lawyer to respond for the judge to an appellate court. I, I mean, it's crazy town. It, it certainly could. It certainly could be. Let's finish with um, my uh, review of The Last Dance. Oh, good. Um, Are we going to disagree some more? Probably. Okay, good. Uh, I think I tend to agree a little bit more with Horace Grant that this was a propaganda flick for Michael Jordan and not really a documentary, more of a uh, hero worship 10-part series. Um, not, not even getting into he, He's a phenomenal athlete. Great will win, wants to do everything to win. I don't think I would really want to be around him that much. He just doesn't seem real happy. He seems very never happy. Okay, well, and, let me stop you just to ask a question. Sure. How then is it a propaganda flick for Michael Jordan if what you've just pointed out is your one of your takeaways is this is not a very likable guy who I wouldn't want to be around? That doesn't sound I like... Think he thinks portrays him well i think he thinks the whole thing portrays him very well no but he doesn't and I he doesn't think well because he actually made the statement to jason um i forget how you pronounce his last name here it's like h-e-h-i-r who made the film that he was concerned that people were going to watch this footage of him berating his teammates and you know mr pathological competitor and look let's be clear and you had snippets of this saying that he could be cruel he could be dismissive mm -hmm. the way that he went after jerry Krause, you've talked about that and jordan himself had said 
I'm a little concerned what people are going to think about this. So it's certainly a fair reaction on your part to say, this makes me like him less as a person, but how do you square that with your statement that that's now a propaganda piece for Michael Jordan? Well, I, I think it gave just a, you know, when you do the, it's like the background, you know, here's, here's the man you all know. Here's a little bit of background. We really don't know him that well. We just, whatever we've got on camera, whatever we've got on tape, that's what we do. I just didn't, I, I like him as a player. I think he's a phenomenal athlete. I don't like him very much as a person. Well, that's, fair. and, and I, I don't, I didn't want to come away with that. And a lot of this I'd heard over the years, but it was all condensed into these uh, 10 episodes. And I just felt like when, when they're doing the interviews with him, you know, reaction to somebody else's comments and, and he's just sitting there talking. He just, he didn't look happy. He looked very unhappy most of the time. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, that necessarily, that isn't necessarily my takeaway, but I think it's entirely fair for you. And a lot of people have said this to have the reaction that boy, Jordan seems like kind of a jerk. Uh, I mean, well, definitely. there's, there's definitely, those are aspects of his personality. Now I don't have the same reaction to it because maybe it's because I'm somebody that, you know, none of this was a surprise to me. Number one, I knew all of this. Sure. And so my attitude about Jordan is I do think he, in many ways is a deeply unhappy guy because his entire life, sadly revolved around basketball competition. And now that he can't get that fix, there's, you know, and he does it with golf and he does it with gambling and all, all the other things that he pursues. I do think that this is the kind of guy that if he doesn't have that, there really isn't much else in his life that has meaning for him. That's sad. That's a sad thing. I will say it, is it didn't make me dislike him because I don't think he's fundamentally a bad guy. He's a guy that in his arena, and he made this clear. He said, look, if you are not willing to commit yourself to the level of competitiveness that I expect, and by the way, that I will do, I don't ask anyone to do anything that I don't do, then you're right. You're going to hate it. We're not going to get along. And I'm basically going to throw you by the side of the road. Now, does that make for somebody you want to hang with? Well, maybe because if you're outside the competitive arena, he's a guy that everyone wants to spend time with. But I wanted, I wanted to address more specifically what you said, because I've heard people like Horace Grant say, this is very unfair to Scottie Pippen. Okay. Now, one of the things about this documentary is if people, I don't think it was unfair to Scottie Pippen. What? Just so you, I don't think it was unfair to Scottie Pippen. Okay. But in other words, I don't have a problem at all with someone saying, I watch this and I don't like Michael Jordan. I think he's a jerk. Okay. That's certainly a reasonable reaction. But I've seen now a lot of arguments basically saying, oh, well, this portrayed so-and-so in a certain way that wasn't fair. You know, Horace Grant got no, no, no credit. And Scottie Pippen, the point is, Michael Jordan did not have editorial control over this documentary. What he did have is, I'm going to green light it. Okay. He told them. I thought he was the executive producer too. What? Was he not? Was he not an executive producer on this? He may be listed as an executive producer, but. Which doesn't. Everything he has that I've heard Jason Hare explain about this is, yes, Michael Jordan allowed this to be released. If he had said no, it's a no go. Okay. And Ken yeah. Burns had sort of criticized this. Ken Burns, the, you know, the documentarian who said, well, this isn't really a documentary. Okay. Fair enough. It, yeah. It's not like, it's not about the civil war. It's about basketball. Right. But the point right. is I've never seen a single 
interview where Hare said, oh, Michael Jordan reviewed this episode and said, uh, you need to take that out and you need to spin it in this way about these guys. Jordan basically greenlighted this and then saw the finished version and said, okay. Now, you could argue that if someone has that level of control, in other words, he's greenlighting it, it's not the same thing. Okay, fair enough. But people are arguing that in specific episodes, the way people are portrayed is somehow up to Jordan. That's the filmmaker. If you have a beef sure. with sure. Scottie Pippen was unfairly portrayed, as some people have said, then Jordan didn't go to this guy and say, you know what? I want you to emphasize the time when Scottie refused to go into the game, and I want you to show that he refused to get back surgery. That was the decision made by the guy that made the documentary. So Jordan is not in there every day reviewing the dailies and saying, cut that out, put this in, make me look better. That wasn't going on. Well, Jordan's the star of the show. I mean, it, that's why they made this the documentary. Well, how Jordan had not be the team, star of the documentary. What's that? How can he not be the star of the show? Well, agreed. So if the premise is he's the star of the show, you're going to try to make him the star of the show. Scotty not going in. That's on Scotty. I'm sorry. You did it. If you don't like the criticism of it, I guess you shouldn't have done it. You didn't get the surgery in 97. That's on you as well. You having a contract you, holdout. Did you, you signed away, a bad contract? That's on you. Did you come away with this thinking less of Scotty Pippen? Because I didn't. No. I, I I thought the same with Scotty Pippen before and after. I thought he was a second banana, but a good second banana. I think he did everything he needed to do. He wasn't the vocal guy. And I think when he says, you know, when Jordan wasn't there in 94, 95, you know, I felt freedom. Yeah, but you didn't produce. And I think that's the difference. You didn't, you thought you could be number one and you weren't. Well, that, and, and, and that's okay. correct. I mean, first of all, he actually did produce the season after Jordan went to play. Was yeah. Pippen actually was a, a contender for league MVP. He played really well. Yeah. But he, he had the average 22 points, but he, he didn't go. He's going to forever be tainted. Yeah. By refusing to go in against the Knicks. Sure. And right or wrong. Justifiably so. And but the, here's the thing. I actually came away from this with despite those, you know, Scottie Pippen has his foibles. He was a little bit immature. You know, he deserves criticism for not going in, but his teammates all loved him. And at the end of the day, one of the people that I, I was watching, um, Mike Greenberg, who does on ESPN, he, what is it, get up or whatever. And he's yeah. a guy that covered the Bulls. Okay, so he knows the team and his position, which surprised me was this is terribly unfair to Scottie Pippen. Everything I remember about the documentary is negative. And for instance, one of the things that he cited was that in the last championship series, the last dance in game six, Scottie Pippen was having horrible back spasms, could barely hobble around the court. If you watch the series, you remember this. Yep. And yep. Greenberg took that as kind of a shot at Pippen. But when I watched it, the entire presentation of that was people extolling the fact that Scottie Pippen was such a warrior that he had a legitimate back injury. I mean, they had Chip Schaefer, who was the trainer on there, saying most people would have been in traction, should not have been on the court. And Scottie Pippen, because he was a warrior and a good teammate, was out there doing what he could. That raised my opinion of Scottie Pippen. I don't know how somebody can watch that and say they included that to make Scottie Pippen look bad. The guy was injured and he gutted it out as best as he could. How does that make him look? Well, didn't you say I was a distraction? And I know I was a distraction, but it worked. 
Right. I mean, in other words, that. it's just strange to me that someone could watch that portion of the documentary and conclude this makes Scottie Pippen look bad. It made him look like a guy that was doing everything he could to help his team win, even though that he was incredible pain and physically limited. And he played an entire, well, not an entire game. He was in and out when he could have sat it out and gone back to the trainer's room. Well, I think he learned when he had migraines and didn't go in that, you know, Jordan was going to, I think Sam Smith looks petty in hindsight. I think Horace Grant to a point looks petty because Horace Grant didn't get the accolades he thinks he deserved for the first three championships. Um, I think Dennis Rodman actually comes off as better. Is that I don't possible? Again, because I, I mean, Dennis Rodman comes off as Dennis Rodman, which is a complete, yeah, but he doesn't seem as selfish, as completely selfish as you might've thought he was. I don't think Rodman is selfish. I think Rodman has some, some mental health issues. Rodman is a guy that, you know, needs all of his bizarro outlets. And I think one of the things that became clear about Rodman was, and this is one of the geniuses of Phil Jackson is that you give this guy a long leash. You let him get away with behavior that you would tolerate from nobody else off the court. But when Rodman showed up right on court to play, he, he was, he was there a hundred percent. He was a great yeah. teammate. You're never going to get a guy to give more effort. And so, I mean, I accept Robin for what he was. I mean, he, in my view, is a Hall of Fame player, even though I think for his career, he might have averaged like six points a game. But, yeah, but how many rebounds? Huh? How many rebounds? How many rebounds did he average? Well, that's my point. That's my point. My point is, this was a guy who was a specialist, but simply by virtue of his rebounding and defense, probably deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, which, which is incredible when you think about it. And this is a guy that, what, he's 6'8", 200 pounds, 210 maybe, 220, and he's banging in the paint against guys that outweigh him by 50 and 60 pounds. He, he's an incredible athlete. I mean, he's he's a very strange guy, but he's a great basketball player. Yeah, he, what is, it says here 13.1 rebounds per game. Yeah. Think about what that means. 911 games. 13.1 rebounds per game. Well, he's 7. Basically a points. small forward. He's a small forward who's yeah. leading the league in rebounding. Again, at, Seven at a time when the league emphasized having huge guys in the paint. Okay, that's not so much the case anymore. I actually think if Rodman played in this era, he'd be even better because there's nobody that could keep him off the boards. Uh, no, so, I agree. Yeah, he's I an agree. interesting guy. I think... Um, Jerry Reinsdorf is trying to rewrite history a little bit. I agree. I think he, I think he tried to make himself look better than he probably acted. And I think he didn't, I think he agreed agree with Jerry Krause on a lot of things. And he's trying to act like he didn't like, Oh, I didn't really think that was a good idea. I tried to get Phil to come back. I tried to get Michael. You, you didn't, I, I don't believe you. Um, I, I think you let Krause run it. And now you're trying because Krause isn't around to dispute well, it. One thing that I, that I learned that I didn't really know before and who knows how true this is or how self-serving it is, is when Reinsdorf said in the last episode, when he was being asked about essentially, how could you allow, how could you allow this team, this dynasty to disintegrate on your watch? And what Reinsdorf said was, even though Krauss made the famous, I don't care if you go 82 and 0, you're not coming back mm -hmm. comment to Phil Jackson at the beginning of the season, essentially poisoning the well forever. Reinsdorf said, I went to Phil after the season and said to him, I don't care what Krause said. 
I want to try to make this work again. And Phil Jackson, according to, according to Reinsdorf said, I'm done. It's time. It's time. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of Reinsdorf's way of saying, I tried to make it happen. I still blame him because number one, he should never have tolerated his GM at the beginning of a season telling the head coach of a team that is going for its third consecutive title and sixth and eight years, I don't care whether you win every game, you're done. That's insane. Any GM that would do that should probably be fired because clearly you're allowing your petty personal grievances to override, as Krauss loved to say, what's good for the organization. Because there is no person, there is no good reason to say anything like that unless your intent is, I want to destroy any possibility that this coach and this team can come back. And why would anyone do that? Well, you know, as I'm looking back on this 10-part series, and I see what happened, I wonder if the strike hadn't happened, would they have found a way to make it work? Did it get go on too long? Um, I don't, I think Scotty was a shell of his former self. He got paid, but he really didn't do a whole heck of a lot after he left the Bulls. Well, he was still, he was still a good player. You remember when, when he went to, he went to Houston first, I think. Right. And then yeah. he went to Portland. And the Blazers, right? right. Yeah. The, the Blazers, when he played for Portland should have beaten the Lakers, the Shaq Kobe Lakers. They, they basically yeah. gacked away game seven in that series. But here's the thing. A lot of people say, okay, Pippen was never going to come back. Because I don't remember, know he, or not. Done, he would have had to agree to a one-year deal. It would have had to pay him, you know, Sultan of Brunei dollars. And why would he do that when he's already got a pending offer? What was it? Five, six years of security from Houston? Maybe. Look, Jordan, they could have made it work in my view. If Jackson is there, Jordan is back. And then Jordan goes to Scotty and says, look, They'll agree to pay you $20 million or whatever it is, you know, tell Reinsdorf to open his pocketbook and pay you like one of the top guys in the league for one season. And let's do this again. I think they could have rolled it back. And the one thing that would have benefited them is because it was a lockout season, a team that is aging, that has now gone through three grueling seasons, they would not have had to start playing basketball until January. Yeah. They would have had a three month break addition yeah. when they normally, you know, in other words, they normally start playing in October, right? They don't and, have to start playing yeah. until January. It's very possible that they win again. I think it's possible. I, I just like the first three, I think there was, they looked tired. They looked like they were, I mean, they were better than the Jazz, but they looked tired sure. to me. I mean, and they probably were, you know, three consecutive seasons. As Jordan himself said, when you have the greatest player in basketball history and you have a team that has won three consecutive championships, you give them the opportunity to defend until somebody on the court beats. Yeah. That, yeah, that's why to me, it's crazy in hindsight that that was allowed to disintegrate. And I hear the other thing is Jordan cut his finger that summer on a cigar cutter. Again, all of that speculation, my point is they could have made found a way to bring them back, and I think it's inexcusable that you don't move heaven and earth to try to make that happen because guess what? As Jordan pointed out and others, um, when's the, the most recent championship that the Bulls <laughs> since then? 
not since 98. They have uh, sniffed a title despite yeah. all the organization winning championships mantra that we've heard. But you and I both know the reality is you have a short window and you take advantage of it while you can, when you have lightning in a bottle and they did, and they got six championships out of it, but would they have had seven or eight? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Well, and I've heard people make the argument like Bob Costas who covered that team, in fact, called the two championship series against the jazz, the finals Costas made the argument that in some ways it's actually better because it makes them more mythical that, you know, they went out unblemished, but here's the point. If you're a competitor, you don't care about that narrative. Okay. There's right. something noble and honorable, even in sort of the world of sports about going out on your shield. So you play it out as long as you can. And if someone snatches it away from you, then kudos to yeah. them, right? It's the past yep. torch. And I think for a guy like Jordan, he, he's not buying the whole, Oh, the optics are so much better. It's like, look, I don't care. I play to win and I want every chance to continue to defend what I have. And if somebody is good enough to beat me in a game that matters, then more power to him. Cause you've just beaten the best guy that's ever done it. Yeah. Not Bob Cousy. I thought Bob Cousy was the goat. Bob Cousy was the goat for probably 10 minutes in 1962. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Bob Cousy's famous quote about Jordan is essentially, I think he said, he was asked who's the best player ever. And he said, well, Jordan is like Nuriev compared to a bunch of, I forget what he said, like, you know, elephants or something. I mean, even Cousy's on board. I don't know. Is Cousy still alive? I think, I think so. I think he said, uh, Wilford Brimley is still alive. I was checking on that because I could not believe that he was uh, still alive, but he is actually only 85. Um, I felt sure he was dead. Uh, and one final Cousy. thought about uh, Jordan, like him or loathe him, um, what is this amazing about this guy's sort of magnetism and the level of interest that he generates? So we are now, what, 22 years post the last dance. Yeah. The Jordan brand still outsells combined LeBron, yeah. KD, Steph, Chris Paul, all of their sales combined of sneakers, Jordan's brand still 22 years later, this guy has not played basketball for two decades. Okay. He came back yeah. seasons with the wizards. He's still more of a cultural icon in many ways than every one of those guys combined, including LeBron, which is, which is incredible. But Bob Cousy is still alive. He's 91. He got the presidential medal of freedom in 2019 from Trump. Wow. Go figure. I didn't, I did not know that for Cousy. Yeah. So, uh, Wilford Brimley still alive. He did cocoon when he was 50. Just so you and know, despite the fact that you like Michael Jordan less, or I mean, I like him less as a person, not as a player. As a person. Is if you're picking teams for the fate of the universe, who's your Michael one selection? Obviously space jam, Michael Jordan. Yeah. Hello. So, I mean, that, that's know. the point is that you can have all the, you know, quibbles you want at his peak, not today at his peak. Well, yes. You mean not at age 58? Yeah. Right. I, I, at his peak. He's not at, his peak <laughs> at age 58. Um, uh, no, he, he's me, obviously. <laughs> I, I think that what this documentary will do for a generation that really didn't watch him 
Okay. They've only seen yeah. the grainy YouTube videos for many of them who are convinced that, you know, LeBron is the man and Kobe's the man. If you actually watch this, I don't yeah. think there's any way <laughs> you got to be going back and saying, you know what? Yeah. Uh, no, LeBron ain't the man and Kobe ain't the man. Uh, this guy is the man. Well, and I think that's what it comes down to. He he's supremely talented. Uh, I think he's the greatest of all time. Uh, didn't didn't uh, Scotty come out and say that maybe Kobe was? Yeah, okay, I, I don't buy that. Kobe was good, but he wasn't that good. No, uh, Kobe uh, Kobe's not. Kobe is a is a reasonable facsimile. Um, he's still you know a B minus compared to Jordan's A plus. There's nobody that's close to him, and you know of course all the LeBron. What's the word now? The stands, right? The stalker fan. Isn't that the abbreviation? They're all yes. now up in arms because this is hurting, uh, you know, their, their case for LeBron. But look, LeBron's on Mount Rushmore. He's a great, great player. He, he ain't Jordan and he's never going to be Jordan. And I don't care what he does for the remainder. Of- you know what? That's okay. It is okay. I, I think it's, yes, if you're driven, you want to compete and you want to be the best that ever lived. But it's okay to be number two when you're in, in that company, I don't think you have to be number one and still have a successful life. That's just my, well, favorite. and actually we've said this before. I think in many respects, LeBron is probably a healthier person. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, but we're just talking about basketball. So yeah, I mean, with the de- the degenerate gambler that is Jordan, who was flipping quarters with his security team oh, for yeah. money. Seriously, <laughs> you're that competitive. You're flipping quarters with your security team. Finish on this. One of the yeah. things about the footage with his security team, which demonstrates that I think Jordan is actually a better guy than you think. For all of his celebrity, you see the way Jordan treated sort of the blue collar people around him with absolute respect. In other words, this is not a guy that goes around saying, do you know who I am? In fact, the people that seem the closest to him, and this is true, George Kohler, who's the guy that is still his best friend. And the reason that he knew Michael is because he went to the airport when Jordan was a rookie arriving in Chicago. Didn't He saw Jordan standing waiting for a limo and said, hey, you need a ride. Didn't even know who he was. And these guys have been best friends ever since. Jordan is not a guy who held himself above people that you see this behavior in Hollywood celebrities, right? Jordan's favorite people to hang with were the security guards and the concession people. And I think that speaks well of him that for a guy who's the most famous person in the world, he did not act like that when he was around the so-called normal people. Right. And we see that behavior all the time with far too many people who seem to think that they're now at a level where they can treat others with disdain. Jordan was cruel to his teammates and he was pathologically competitive. But for regular folks, he was just a guy that treated them with the same respect that he would treat anyone in his, you know, in his realm. And I think that speaks well of him. Don't disagree. And you got to love that curly mullet on the one security guy. You know, sadly, that, that, guy, that guy passed away. Oh, that's too bad because he had a fine head of hair. I just got to say, a fine head of hair. He did. I don't know how he did. He and the other guy, Gus Lett, who became sort of Jordan's surrogate father, he also passed away. I think three of the four, three of those four guys who were with security detail have all passed now. I think there's one of them that's left. That's too bad. All right, got anything else to add? I think we have 
done excessive damage, damage once again. Uh, that's how we do it. We we roll with excessive damage. Thank you for joining us. I'm Chad. I'm Tony. Good night. Thanks for listening. This has been a Hannah Tree production.